0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is James 1, 16 to 18. Uh, For several months now, we've been talking about the Christian's relationship to trials. Uh, Trials, of course, are a common occurrence, not just in the Christian's life, but really in anyone's life. They can be big or small. They can be long-lived or occur for only a very short amount of time. But in whatever shape or form they take... We all ask the same kinds of questions. We want to know, what am I supposed to do here? How, how am I supposed to respond to this trial? We want to know, what resources are there to help me through this? And, and how long is this trial going to last? But perhaps the most pressing question we want to know in times of trial is, why? Why is this happening to me? What is the purpose of this trial. Is there any purpose to it? For the Christian, these questions take their own unique shape. After all, we know that the events that occur in our life aren't random. They're orchestrated by God. And so as we ask this question, why, we know that God must have something to do with it. He has to be part of the answer. This will even lead some Christians to assume that God must want them to fail. That the reason they're suffering is because God is trying to make them sin. James has already addressed this concern back in verses 13 to 15. He's already explained that God isn't the reason for our sin. We are. He's told us in verses 16 to 17 that God only knows how to give good gifts. Well, if that's the case, if God is indeed good, and if He can only give good gifts then how do you explain the trials that we so often encounter in our lives? How are these good gifts? James is going to answer that question for us this morning in James 1, 16-18. Uh, let's begin by reading the passage in its context, starting in verse 2, continuing through verse 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. There are some things in life that you really only understand once you're old enough or mature enough. When I was in third grade, my family moved from uh, Oklahoma to Wisconsin. Uh, At the time, I was Pretty excited about the move. I was going to miss my friends, uh, for sure, and I was going to miss my hometown. I I loved where I was from. But at the same time, the thought of moving to a new state that I had never been to before seemed like a kind of adventure. There are all kinds of unknowns. I mean, new towns, new people, new schools. I thought the whole thing seemed kind of exciting. Uh, But something changed in my family after that move. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that when we lived in Oklahoma, our family seemed to be the center of the universe. As a child, of course, you don't really know a whole lot about life yet, and so your parents set the tone of things for you. They show you what's important about life, what matters, and when we lived in Oklahoma, family seemed to be the highest value. It seemed to be the thing that mattered most to my parents. We'd go to Tulsa on the weekend as a family. We'd visit my grandparents in Missouri every month or two. Uh, we'd go to Colorado with them over the summer. Uh, we went to baseball and basketball games together. I'd help my dad water the trees in the yard after work. I remember a few times we even drove my dad to work early in the morning and dropped him off. In short, we did a lot of things, but we more or less did them all together. Uh, family was the, the common thread that united it all. And so I never had any question about what life was about. It was about family. Family was the most important thing. After we moved to Wisconsin, though, something changed. My dad started coming home from work later and later. It seemed like a lot of times he'd leave when it was still dark, and then he'd come home after it was dark. And when he'd come home, he'd often eat dinner and go to his bedroom and shut the door. Before long, he was going on trips overseas for a few weeks at a time when he had hardly ever taken business trips before. My mom started taking me to my brother's basketball games alone. None of this was was anything that I ever complained about. Again, when you're a child, you don't really know anything different than what you grow up with. You just assume that the things that your parents do are normal and natural. And it's only later, as you become exposed to a broader world, that you really begin to critically examine the decisions that they make. And so for me, this all seemed quite normal at the time. Whereas before, I thought life was about family, I was learning. Family wasn't the most important thing about life. After all, it was your career. And I was incredibly proud of my dad because he was smart and he worked hard and he had a great career. As I got older and saw more of the world, my values shifted. I looked at my dad and I saw someone who spent their whole life working for things that that didn't last while ignoring the things that really mattered. I determined that I didn't want to be like my dad. And in truth, I even resented him a little bit for the decision he made when he moved us from Oklahoma to Wisconsin. Flash forward several years. I eventually became a father myself. And I learn something of the love a father has for his child. I also learn, as well how hard it is to navigate your way through life. How many things you don't understand about life when you're young. And how many of the things that happen in life aren't entirely under your control. My dad and I are sitting on his back deck talking about life. I just accepted the call to come and minister here at Cornerstone. It's kind of a a pivotal moment in my own life. And as we're discussing this, I finally asked my dad, what happened? What happened? Life changed when we moved to Oklahoma. It seemed like before your focus was on the family, but when we moved to Wisconsin, you became oriented around your career. What, What caused that? Did you know you were making that choice when we moved? And as I listened, my dad proceeded to explain to me that no, it wasn't planned. He had interviewed for one position, but his boss was secretly hiring him to take his own job after he retired. So he had suddenly been thrust into a job that he didn't want, which he wasn't prepared for, but he couldn't just move us back to Oklahoma, so what was he supposed to do? He had to make the best of the situation. Not long after that, the company started laying off a bunch of people while he was sitting in a position that he didn't feel qualified for. He had a boss who would literally jump up on the table, like walk across the conference table kick your things onto the floor when he was angry. That's why he was coming home stressed every day. That's where the migraines were coming from and why he'd go into his bedroom and shut the door. My dad was one of the lone survivors of the layoffs. Once my dad helped the company work through that situation, they kept him on because he was one of the few people that had a relationship with this multi-billion dollar... Uh, company and a deal they were working on. Once he helped them work through that, a position opened up back at his old foundry in Oklahoma. His boss asked him if he wanted to move back, and he jumped at the chance. That's why we moved back to Oklahoma in fifth grade. My dad wanted to go back to the way things were. But then the company sold the foundry two years later, and he had to decide whether he was going to keep us in Oklahoma and risk being relocated by the new company or choose to be relocated and at least take us back to a place we were familiar with, which was corporate headquarters in Wisconsin. He chose Wisconsin. And that's why we ended up in Wisconsin from seventh grade on. He wasn't chasing a career. He just didn't feel like he had any other choice. Some of the things I'd known at the time, but I'd never got a chance to see the big picture from his perspective. But needless to say, my understanding of my dad changed that afternoon. Here I always thought what happened, uh, I thought something had changed about him, and I wondered what happened to the guy that I knew in Oklahoma. Turns out he'd actually never gone anywhere. He was more or less the same. He was just forced to make decisions that he'd never fully anticipated. But the thing is, there was no way that he could explain those decisions to me at the time. There was no way I could really understand any of them in my third grade brain. And even if I could, there was no reason to burden me with the implications of those choices. It wouldn't make my life better to know what he was going through for us. If anything, it'd only make it harder. And so he decided not to explain what was happening to my brother and I. I went on in ignorance, thinking my dad, a vain and arrogant man. It turns out he was just trying to do the best thing he could for us, given the circumstances. He was more or less still the same person he always was. He still loved us the same in Wisconsin as he did in Oklahoma. It just expressed itself differently, given the circumstances. If you've ever been in a position of authority, you know how this works. Uh, when I was at grade school, there was this one student, and, and she broke all kinds of rules. But her father was awful. I mean, he, he was the very worst kind of legalist. And so we'd have to discipline her for the sake of order and for the sake of the other students in her class. And then I'd have to watch as her father repeatedly responded to her disobedience with a sort of religious legalism that only reinforced her rebellion. And I wanted to tell her at the time, look, Christians aren't supposed to act like your dad, but how could I tell her that right without undermining her father's authority? And like it or not, he was an authority in her life. And God wanted her to learn to respect him, just as he wants us all to respect even unjust authorities. At best I could figure, I had to stay silent. I had to explain Christianity as best I could, explain my actions as best I could as I disciplined her, and then trust that once she got older, perhaps she'd come to see that my silence was not to be interpreted as complicity with her father's actions. It's just that there were other competing factors that compelled me to remain silent about her father's legalism for her good. Again, I'd imagine you've probably found yourself in a similar position from time to time. Well, it's somewhat the same when it comes to God and the trials that we experience. I think if there's one thing that's been evident to us over the past several weeks, it's that when when it comes to understanding the ways that God works through evil and sin, His ways are clearly not our ways. There is, a, there is a wisdom at work in suffering that is very hard for us to understand. This is not to say that there's not a reason for the decisions that he makes. It's just that we don't always possess the capability to see things from his perspective and understand the wisdom of his choices. It's just like my situation with me and my dad. Sometimes God will make decisions, and as we see the outcome of those decisions, we may begin to wonder what his purposes are. When everything started out, it seemed like God was focused on one thing. He wanted to display His love towards us. That was the thing that was most important to Him. But then as the trials come into our life, we may begin to suspect that there's something else He's after. Maybe He doesn't really mean to help us. Uh, Maybe, as James Reader supposed, maybe God means to make us sin. Maybe He wants us to fail. When we start to think that way, we can begin to wonder, what happened? What, What changed? Did God change? Is He different now than He was then? Is, is He not the same God that I thought He was when I believed on Christ? Here in James 1.16-18, James tells us that the answer to this question is, no, He's still the same God. Nothing's changed. His character is completely consistent from one moment to the next. He still only desires your good. Verses 16-17, to James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James' point is that the trials shouldn't fool us into thinking that there's any sort of divided interest in God, that He gives good the one minute and then evil the next. No, we should understand, even in the midst of trials, God only gives good gifts. Well, then why the trials? Why the suffering, right? How does that work? From what we've discussed so far, what we can at least know is that these trials are somehow for our good, but what is that good? That's what James is going to get into this morning in verse 18. And if you want to think of it this way, verse 18 is supposed to be that moment when we're sitting on the back deck and we ask the question, why? What happened there? Did you change God? What was going on with that? God explains the answer for us. And we come away understanding James' point. God hasn't changed. He's the same God He's always been. It's just that we haven't always been mature enough to understand the good that He's been working out for us in the pain. So here's our explanation. This is where James is going to begin to pull together for us how the goodness of God is at work in trials. And I just want to say up front, this is only one of the answers that James could give. There are many good purposes that God can work out in trials other than the one that He's going to share with us this morning. And just like I said last week, I think it's very important that you keep that in mind because even after you understand the answer, there are going to be moments where it still won't make sense. And when that happens, you need to trust in the goodness and the wisdom of God even then. But this is at least one reason why God may make you suffer. And for continuity's sake, I want to structure this point the same way I did last week. Last week, you'll recall, I said that James follows up this statement, Do not be deceived. In verse 16, with two spiritual truths that are meant to dispel this thought that God means to make us sin, the first spiritual truth was that God only gives good gifts. God only gives good gifts. Well, here's the second spiritual truth. Truth number two, God has chosen you to be like Christ. Let me say that one more time. God has chosen you to be like Christ. And this is the answer for why God sometimes makes you suffer. He wants you to be like Christ. We see this answer in verse 18. After stating that they shouldn't be deceived, that God isn't the source of their sin, because there is no evil in Him, and He only knows how to give good gifts, in verses 13-16, to James now says, verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. There are two parts to this verse. In the first half, James tells us what God has done, and in the second half, he tells us why, for what purpose. And what's really interesting about this verse, if you're paying attention, is that James uses the exact same sort of language that he used back in verses 13 to 15, in verse 15 actually in particular. In other words, there appears to be a kind of contrast between the thought that occurs in verses 13 to 15, which is that God wants to make us sin, and what God actually wants to do with us here in verses 16 to 18. There's a contrast. Again, we're not to be deceived. It's not sin that God desires. It's another thing. James wants to contrast these two ideas, and so he uses the same language in these verses to say that still another way, the subject hasn't changed. And we see it in the imagery that James uses here. We're still on the same topic. Does does God mean to produce evil in us? Is that why we experience trials? No, James says, it's because he means to produce Christ-likeness. So once again, James begins by telling us what God has done. And what has He done? James says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. Every single aspect of this phrase is so absolutely rich. Probably the key word though, the one that starts to tie this entire verse, and even this entire passage together, comes from this phrase, brought us forth. The word for brought forth there is apakueo, and it means to give birth to, or to bring into being. And it occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and that's back in verse 15, when James says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The Christian Standard Bible, by the way, translates that phrase, and sin, when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The idea is that illicit desire gives birth to sin, and sin brings, uh, gives birth to death. Death, in this sense, is, is the grandchild of our sinful desires. It's the second generation, the eventual offspring of our sinful desires. Here in verse 18, James mirrors that language, only this time he speaks of God bringing us forth by the word of truth. And can you start to see the comparison here? There, there are two different conceptions taking place in verses 15 to 18, in two different kinds of birth. The first conception begins back in verse 15 with our desires. Our desires. You'll recall, you'll recall verse 14, James says that we are tempted and we're lured and carried away by our own desires. The picture, once again, is almost of a a promiscuous woman who goes out searching for a willing partner. She finds one when she encounters temptation, and the result is sin's conception. That's where sin originates, according to James, with our own desires as they first seek and and then engage with temptation's lies. Now, look at the, the juxtaposition here in verse 18. Here there's a second kind of birth. But this birth isn't rooted in our desires. Where is it rooted? It's in God's desires. Do you see that? First half of verse 18. Of His own will He brought us forth. Back in verse 15, our desires brought forth sin. Here it's our birth that's accomplished of, or by, or according to His will. In fact, it may even be stronger than that. As one commentator points out, the way this phrase is is used in other ancient Greek sources, it may be better to translate this phrase as when he willed or when he decided. The idea would be that James isn't just speaking of the means, the instrument of our birth, but rather the moment of our birth. We were brought forth only once he decided. If that's so, then that would magnify the sovereignty of God in this act. God decides, He decrees, and it's done. It's accomplished. Just as God spoke the worlds into existence by the power of His Word, that's this picture we have here. God speaks, and so we're brought forth. When He willed. So if God's will is not depicted as the means of our birth in this passage, but the moment, so to speak, then what is the means? You see it towards the end of the first half of the verse. We are brought forth by the word of truth. What's James mean here? Again, you go back to verse 17, and he's speaking of God's work in creation. Is that what this is a reference to? Is he referring to God speaking us into existence by the power of His word along with everything else by the power of His word there? I don't think that's the case here. You go to the Apostle Paul, for instance, and on two different occasions he uses this phrase, the word of truth, and he makes it synonymous with the gospel. For example, in Ephesians 1, 13, he says, "...in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit." Likewise, in Colossians 1, 3-6, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Peter also uses the same kind of language when he says in 1 Peter 1, 22-25, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that was preached to you. That's, that's clearly a reference to the gospel. Peter says that this is the word by which his readers have been born again, not of perishable seed or imperishable, but through the living and abiding word of God. Now, of course, Peter and Paul are obviously two different writers than James, so we can't assume that they're necessarily going to use this, the same sort of vocabulary and phrases, but the fact that they both associate this terminology with the gospel and with the act of regeneration, no less, Right? Keep in mind, it's when the Ephesians heard the word of truth, the gospel, that they believed and were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. In the same way, Peter's readers were born again by the word of truth. This good news that was preached to them. The fact that they both tend to associate the word of truth both with the gospel and with the act of spiritual regeneration. And it's just too much of a coincidence to ignore the connection with James. It would seem that what James is speaking about here in verse 18 is the act of spiritual regeneration. Which occurs when a person hears the gospel and believes. Speaking of of this act, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm perplexed by this answer. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb and be born? Jesus answers, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says both that this new birth, this second birth, must be accomplished by the Holy Spirit and that it is a sovereign act of God. Just as the wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, it's silent and unseen and uncontrollable, so is the work of the Spirit in bringing about the second birth. That's what James is saying here too in verse 18. We already saw back in verses 14 to 15 what our desires produce, right? Our desires bring forth sin, and with sin, death. That's what we saw not three or four weeks ago when we, when we saw that the Scripture describes us as being bound to sin internally before we come to know Christ. Before the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we have only one desire, and that's sin, because we have only one principle working within us, and that's the flesh which so far from heeding God's commands, actually sees these commands as an opportunity to rebel. So our desires are only going to end in one way, and that is sin. And with sin, death. But God's desires, again, they're not going to produce sin and death because those things are contrary to His nature. So what will God's desires produce? Life. Life. And with life, obedience. That's what we see occur in the second half of verse 18. Once again, in the first half, James describes what God has done. He's brought us forth by the word of truth. He's made us alive to himself through the gospel that's been preached to us. In short, whereas we once rebelled against God, again, that's what our desires produce rebellion. But when God decided, he broke that rebellion by making us alive to Christ. Now, in the second half, James explains why he did it. So, why did God do it? Why did he bring us forth by the word of truth? Second half of verse 18. He says he brought us forth, right, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is a kind of a perplexing phrase, a, a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Uh, you look at that word first fruits, and there are two ways of looking at it. The first fruits are the first part of the harvest season, right? The very first fruits that are harvested, hence the name first fruits. This means that the first fruits can be a reference to a greater harvest to come. Jesus is, is referred to in this way when he's called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 15. His resurrection was the very first permanent resurrection. And in this way, it is a promise of future resurrections to come, our resurrection. He's the firstfruits. So James could mean firstfruits in this sense. It's, It's the sign of a greater harvest to come. The only problem is that contextually, it's hard to figure out what that later harvest would be. James is speaking of our regeneration in the first half of verse 18. It's hard to see how our regeneration signifies another wave of regenerations to come. I mean, there are no real parallels for that in Scripture. You could, you could my, maybe try to say it's a reference to evangelism in the Great Commission or something like that, but it'd be forced to say that to, at, at the least. James isn't talking about evangelism at all here. So what's he mean by this word, fruits? Well, the second implication of this term firstfruits is found in the fact that in the Old Testament, the fruits of the harvest was that portion of the harvest that was dedicated to God. The firstfruits of the grain and the wine, the fruits of the flock, even the firstborn of the children of Israel, these were all either dedicated to God in service or they were redeemed with a price. That seems to be the background that James is trying to draw on here, this idea of dedication and service. In fact, it would seem that this is even why he changes the terminology here, going from birth terminology to harvest terminology. If he were to, to speak of us as being the firstborn of his creatures, that's going to carry the idea of inheritance or birthright. But that's not the point here. His point, rather, is to say that we've been born to be dedicated into service to God, and, and first fruits is the word that most naturally conjures up this idea. The idea is that God has brought us forth by the word of truth in order to obey, in order to be dedicated to God, in order to worship. Don't lose sight of this. This is going to be such an important concept contextually. Uh, Down in verses 22 to 25, for instance, when James speaks of being a doer of the word and not a hearer, and how the one who hears is, is like a man who takes a hard look in the mirror at who he is. He takes a look in the mirror at his identity, and then he goes away and forgets what he looks like. That's all rooted in this idea back here in verse 18. That God has brought us forth to be a kind of firstfruits of His creation. He made us alive so that we, should, we could worship and obey Him. So many Christians today miss this point. The way the Gospels presented, it's as if the only purpose of Christ's death on the cross is for our redemption from hell. Like like the reason why he died is so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Deliverance from the wrath of God is good news. But it's not the ultimate reason why Christ died. No, the ultimate reason why Christ died is captured perfectly in Titus 2, 11-14. When Paul says, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people." training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, listen to this verse 14, who gave himself for us, why, Paul says, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He didn't just die for our salvation, in other words. He also died for our sanctification. He didn't just die to free us from the penalty of sin. He also died to free us from the power of sin. He didn't just die to deliver us from the wrath of God in hell. He died to reconcile us to the glory of God in heaven. In short, He died. So that in witnessing the beauty and love and grace of our God, we might ascribe to Him honor and glory and blessing. He died, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, for our worship. And just so we're clear, that's good for everyone, right? Like God is glorified when we worship, but we also delight in God when we worship. So everyone benefits here. God is glorified and we're blessed. If you're going to understand God's purpose in trials, you really have to get this point. You don't live anymore, Christian, so that you can be dedicated for your purposes. No, you were redeemed not so that you could pursue your own desires. No, you were saved, rather, so that you would be dedicated to God. This is the point that James readers are going to miss in chapter 4. They're going to be, they're going to be praying for things, and they're going to be praying for these things so that they can spend them on their own pleasures. And James is going to say to them, you adulterous people, don't you know the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell within you? That's why he won't answer your prayers. He's not answering your prayers because you're praying for the wrong stuff. You don't get to focus on you anymore. You've been called out of this world to give glory and honor to God. And if you don't understand this point, that we've been saved for the glory of God, then the trials in your life aren't going to make any sense. So what's the purpose of trials? The answer by this point should be rather obvious. It's, it's our holiness. It's our obedience. It's our righteousness. Yeah, I mean, you take this whole imagery of, of death to life and how it's accomplished by the power of God, and it's just like what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he says that although we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, even while we were in that state, God made us alive together with Christ. And Why? Paul answers in verse 10 when he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that that we should walk in them. This is the major point that James starts with in verses 2 to 4, and then concludes with here at the end of this section, verse 18. Uh, You know, why should we consider all joy when we encounter trials according to verse 2? Well, because verse 3, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, verse 4, makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, at the beginning of today's sermon, I spoke a lot about my dad. I don't know if uh, many of you have been in a room with me and my dad at the same time. He has visited this church, I think, once, but it's been a while. If you were in the room with me and my dad, um, you would see how much we look alike. All I heard growing up was how much I look like my dad. We have the same kind of angry forehead. We have uh, the same hair, unfortunately. Uh, the same eyes. The same chin. It's the same when my first child was born. I started showing them off to other people, and usually one of the first comments I'd often hear is, well, there's no guessing who that child belongs to. That's a jokey baby right there. I'd imagine it's the same way with you, with one or maybe both of your parents. If you have any siblings, you guys could probably stand next to each other, and right away people would know you're related just by the way you look. It's in our DNA. We we take on the characteristics of our parents. Well, in the same way, God has brought us forth Right? He's given birth to us through the word of truth so that we too might share in His likeness. I mean, that's how He created mankind, didn't He? Genesis 1, 26-27, God makes man in His image after His likeness. That's what we were all created for before the fall, to bear the image of God. Sin has marred that image, but in Christ that image is being redeemed. And through our obedience we are made to share in that likeness once again. It says Paul writes in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, he says, As obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. This is God's will for you, Christian. Your sanctification. He means to make you holy. And what James is saying here is that he means to do that through trials in particular. In other words, to to go back to verse 13, no, God's not meaning to make you sin when he sends you trials. It can feel like that a lot of times. The pressure can become so intense that it can seem like sin is unavoidable. But He's not meaning to make you sin, per se. His desire is not for your failure. His desire actually is the exact opposite of that. Again, God only knows how to to give good gifts. His character is completely consistent. He cannot love sin. He only loves righteousness. And so when He sends you trials, He does it not to corrupt you but to sanctify you. He does it to make you holy. He does it to make you like Christ. So how does that work? How do trials produce Christ's likeness? James doesn't really answer that for us here, but what I'd like to do with the time we have remaining is, is very briefly walk through the answer to that question For you, so that hopefully you can see James' point, and in seeing his point, rejoice in the blessing that God brings you in trials, maybe the next time a trial comes. How do trials produce Christ's likeness? Here are very briefly two ways, and I'll just say up front that I by no means think that this is a comprehensive list. In fact, I can think of at least three other ways that trials produce Christ's likeness other than what I'm sharing with you here, but we just don't have time to cover them all. Uh, But here are at least two very critical ways that trials produce Christ's likeness. First, and perhaps most significantly, trials tend to reveal our idols. Trials tend to reveal our idols. Jesus, of course, worshipped. He delighted in God and He put Him first. There's, There's perhaps no better instance of this than when Satan came and tempted Him in the wilderness, right? Now that, of course, was an incredibly severe trial for Jesus, perhaps the most severe until the moment of His crucifixion. Well, three times Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin against God, and after failing to deceive Jesus in the first two attempts, Satan finally cuts right to the chase in the third attempt. He takes Jesus up to a high mountain, shows him the kingdom of the earth, and he says, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. It doesn't work. In fact, it fails so badly, Jesus is actually outraged by it. He tells Satan, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus had his priorities very clear. There was one person that came above everything else, and that was God. And of course, he demonstrated this worship to the degree of offering his very life to God and in the supreme act of obedience in his death on the cross. Uh, you and I, of course, are, are most definitely not this way, right? We're very far from Jesus, sort of priorities and commitment to God. Satan doesn't even have to come and tempt us with the whole world, right, to get us to sin against God. We'll do it for some couch lint and a chewed-up stick of gum, right? I mean, like, like it, doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot to satisfy us. Just a few fleeting moments of pleasure and that's enough. That'll do. We'll sell out the Son of God. Just toss Him and His glory in the trash if it just means we can have a few seconds of short-lived happiness. Well, one of the benefits of trials is that they tend to uncover the idols of our heart. Now, again, I stated a couple of weeks ago that this is not to say that every time a trial hurts is because of some type of sin. Sometimes they hurt simply because they hurt. Your desires can be perfectly pure and the trial can hurt because they are pure. I think you see that on display several times in Jesus' life, where He suffers because of His righteousness and His pure desires. However, that being said, very often, this is not the case, very often the reason why the trial hurts is because it's threatening one of our idols. One of my seminary professors described it well, I think. He said, the illustration he gave, he said, said, you know, imagine I have an orange here in my hand. Now, suppose that I start to give it a good squeeze. What's going to come out? It's going to be orange juice, right? Like, it's not going to be apple juice or grape juice or something. It's going to be orange juice because that's what's in the orange well, that's the way the heart works when it's under pressure. What's going to come out in those moments is what a person truly believes. I mean, you stop and think about it, and that's one of the things that, that, we, that causes us to admire great acts of heroism, for instance. When a disaster strikes and someone immediately jumps in and does the heroic thing without thinking, we we admire them, and rightly so, because when a person doesn't have time to think, but they simply act in the urgency of the moment, that's when you're seeing who the person really is on the inside. Uh, People think that a a hero is made in a single act, but typically that isn't true. A person doesn't spend their whole life acting out of self-interest, and then suddenly act sacrificially out of some innate instinct when the stakes are suddenly highest. No, the consistently self-interested person will be revealed to be self-interested in the time of trial. They'll run away from the conflict. They'll hide. They'll save themselves. Because that's who they truly are on the inside. The fact is, trials expose hypocrites. They show them to be who they truly are. And on the flip side, they also reveal the truly righteous. I mean, the one who rushes into the burning building without thinking is typically going to be the person who has practiced that exact kind of decision over and over and over again a thousand times in a thousand smaller decisions. Day by day, they choose to sacrifice themselves for others. And so when the time comes to act on instinct, they do what's natural. They do what they always have done. They sacrifice themselves. You take two Christians. They both seem righteous on the outside. There's nothing blatantly sinful about either one's conduct, but then tragedy strikes their life. And the one praises God. They're calm, they're content, they're thankful. And the other curses God and complains. That tells you something about the quality of their previous obedience, doesn't it? I mean, that's the whole point of the first couple of chapters of Job, right? Satan puts pressure on Job in order to reveal the source of his worship. And so he takes Job's wealth, he kills his family, even afflicts his body, and yet Job still praises God. And what does that tell us about Job? It shows us that he was real, right? That was the whole point of the trial. Well, it's the same way with you. When God brings trials into your life, one of the things He does is expose where your idols are. It's like I said a couple weeks back. You know, I didn't think I idolized money until I didn't have it. You know, I didn't think I found refuge in my physical health until I began to think I was sick. God has attacked my hidden idols through trials. He's brought them to the surface and exposed them so that they could be dealt with. In that sense, could you say that God means to to make me sin when I encounter trials? <sighs> I don't know if you can say that. I mean, he definitely will test us, right? There's no doubt about that. Even that testing is often designed to expose our idols so that they can be put to death. And this leads us into our next point. Trials not only reveal our idols, but number two, they train us to obey by faith. They train us to obey by faith. In other words, trials don't just reveal our idols, they attack them. Going back to to verses 13 to 15, when we're experiencing trials, it can feel like we're sinning against our will. That's because as trials reveal our idols, they force us to choose. They make us choose between our idols and Christ. That's where this feeling of, of compulsion comes from. And that's part of the beauty of trials. Part of the beauty of trials is they force us to choose. I think it's notable here that James doesn't say that James doesn't say that God brought us forth by the gospel or even by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the way he phrases it, he says that God brought us forth by the word of truth. Again, this verse serves as a, as a juxtaposition to what James says in verses 13 to 15. Well in verses 13 to 15, how is sin conceived?" Or to phrase it another way, what's the product? of that union? Or what's the product of what union? It's the product of what union? The answer is in verse 14. It's a product of our sinful desires matched with temptation. And we spoke about this a couple weeks back. The reason why we still sin, even after receiving the Holy Spirit, is first, because of our sinful flesh, and second, because of ignorance. We have sinful desires that wish to be fulfilled, and they find opportunity through temptation's deceit, and the two concepts conspire together to take our will captive and bring forth sin. I tend to think that this is why James refers to the gospel as the word of truth here in verse 18. We're not to be deceived, right? Verse 17. Instead, we're, we're to remember the goodness of the God who brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The point is that contrary to what the flesh tells us, we're to remember that temptation's promises are lies, which bring us death, whereas God's promises are good and true and mean to bring us life. As I've pointed out several times over the past several weeks, it's by this faith that we find strength to obey in the midst of trials. It's when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe God's Word to be more true than the temptation of sin and the desires of the flesh as it cries out against us in our suffering. It's then that we'll remain steadfast. And verse 4, right, steadfastness, will have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul speaks of putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit in Romans 8. That's what happens in trials. Trials deprive the flesh of its desires. And as the flesh cries out in agony, thereby revealing its presence, the Spirit manages to crucify these desires by faith. How does that work practically? Well, as you walk by faith and obey God without feeding flesh's sinful desires, you thereby learn that temptation truly was a lie. As much as the flesh insisted that you really needed what it demanded, it wasn't true. You survived. And you realize that God truly is enough. The power of uh, temptation's deception is thereby broken, and your faith is gradually based less and less on blind trust and more and more on proven experience. You believe God to be true, not just because He says He's true, but because you know He's true. A conviction has been formed. You've seen it with your own eyes. You see this pattern repeated throughout the Bible, by the way. God demands faith, and a person exercises faith. They see Him act, and then their faith is strengthened in order to act again. I tend to think this is what James means when he says, "Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you." In verse in chapter four, uh, he'll, we move toward God by faith, and in return, we witness the faithfulness of God, and our faith is thereby strengthened. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis shares an illustration that I think captures this whole idea quite well. And just so you know, if you haven't read The Great Divorce, I wouldn't necessarily, I would not make sure I heard you said. I would not necessarily recommend it. But it does have an illustration that captures this idea well. In The Great Divorce, there are these figures called ghosts who are uh, essentially unbelievers. And the reason why they're depicted as ghosts is because for Lewis, to live without God is to be less than fully human. And in the book, they start in this grayish kind of town that's alternately either purgatory or hell. And that's why I've said, like, I would not recommend the book. But they, but they begin on this journey to a place that ends up being heaven. Anyways, in the book, the ghosts encounter solid figures who are believers, and these believers urge the ghosts forward by telling them they'll be, more, they'll be made solid if they continue on their journey to heaven. Uh, but many of the ghosts give excuses as to why they can't go on, and they go back to the gray town. Well, there's this one man with a red lizard on his shoulder in the book, and this lizard represents lust. The lizard continually whispers in his ear, And all of a sudden, he starts to turn back when an angel stops him. The angel says, off so soon? Yes, I'm off, says the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. Referring to the lizard on his shoulder, he says, I I told this little chap that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, asks the angel. Of course I would says the ghost. Then I will kill him, says the angel. And he, and he takes a step toward the man. This angel, he's, he's brilliantly bright and he radiates heat from his body and so the man starts to cry out. He goes, Ooh, ah, ah, You're burning me, says the ghost. Keep away. Do you want him killed? Asks the angel. I mean, You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, says the angel. Shall I kill it? Well that's a that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean for the moment I was only thinking about silencing it because up here well it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? asks the angel. Well there's no time to discuss uh, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? asks the angel again. Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Asks the angel again. Get back, you're burning me. How can I I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so, says the angel. Why, you're hurting me now, says the man. I never said it wouldn't hurt you, says the angel. I said it wouldn't kill you. This exchange goes back and forth until finally the ghost relents. Have I permission? Have I I your permission? asks the angel. The ghost says one more time, I know it will kill me. It won't, the angel says. But supposing it did. You're right, the ghost says. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. And as he braces himself for the angel's touch, he, he whimpers to himself, God help me, God help me. Lewis says, Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony, such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip around the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broke back on the turf. Suddenly, the ghost begins to take form as he's transformed into a solid figure in the lizard, which represented his lust. It isn't killed so much as it is transformed into this mighty and beautiful horse that the man mounts and rides on his journey up to heaven. So, now, the last part of that story, I think, is kind of a little cheesy, the, the horse riding it up to heaven. I think it's a little too much. But, but ladies and gentlemen, that's very much a picture of what God means to you in trials. He means to expose your sinful desires so he can kill and then transform them into something that brings him glory as you learn to find true and lasting joy in him. He sent Paul, for instance, his thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited, to make him humble and dependent. David gained the courage to slay Goliath after God delivered him from the paw of the lion and the bear. So too does God mean to teach you faith in the pain of trials. Going back to your your friend in the coffee shop from a few weeks back, right? The one who's wondering why God won't free them from the power of their sin. Uh, Do you know what I'd say to them? Do you know what I'd tell them? If I had the opportunity to talk to them, I'd, I'd tell them He already is freeing you from the power of your sin. He's using your weakness to teach you to place your faith and hope in Him. And it's once you learn to lean on His sufficiency, His goodness, that the power of this sin will be broken as you seek to find your joy and satisfaction in Him. Again, yes, God does send trials. But no, He does not do it because He wants us to sin. Rather, He uses trials to transform our desires into holy desires so that being transformed, we might bear the image of His Son through faith. And again, that's a good gift. The problem with sin is that it is not good for us. It does produce death. Holiness brings life and joy. God calls us to obey. As He does this, He blesses us with the joy found in Him. And so in this way, trials are a blessing because they sanctify us. They teach us how to find joy in the right things. And this is just the beginning. I don't have time this morning to explain to you, for instance, how trials are a unique opportunity to display the same kind of love towards the Father that Jesus displayed when He went to the cross. I don't have time to explain how suffering shapes us to be like Christ in the compassion that we extend to those who are hurting. Nor do I have time to explain how this steadfast faith causes God to be glorified in our lives, such that the beauty of the gospel reverberates and echoes in the ears of those around us through the proven character of our lives. There's so much that God means to do through trials. There's so much good that He works out through them. But regardless, I think the point is very clear trials are a blessing. God doesn't mean to hurt us when He sends us trials, He means to heal us, He means to make us whole. Just like a loving father approves or disciplines his son, so too does our Heavenly Father discipline us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12. And so as we wrap up this first section of James, I would encourage you, the next time trials come, don't become embittered or complain. And don't start to accuse God of wrongdoing. Don't tell yourself, there's nothing I can do about this. God is forcing me to sin. Instead, ask yourself, what is God meaning to teach me here? Where am I needing to grow? How is he meaning to teach me how to find joy in him? And then rejoice. Because those trials are a sign of God's love for you. Let's pray.